idea. I mean, for the first two months that I worked here, I didn't know he talked. <laughs> and I mean, and, and, and that story's so awesome. I mean, here, here's what, so Nate and I, Nate's my eight-year-old, we go and we drove through Wendy's because that's what we do. And we're at a gas station and Nate says, hey, is that guy homeless? And I say, I think so. And he says, well, we should give him some food. And I'm like, okay. And he says, well, your food, Daddy. I'm eating my food. <laughs> I say, okay. So, so I go over and I, I give, I just say, excuse me, sir. Um, we have some extra food. Would you, are you hungry? Would you like it? And he kind of, he's kind of laying there. And he looks at me and he says, and forgive my language. Um, it gets so quiet when I say that. And he says, uh, mm, it's not any of that tofu crap, is it? <laughs> to which I say, sir, do I strike you as a man that eats a lot of tofu? <laughs> no, you don't. I said, it's a sirloin burger for you, sir. Don't, don't worry about it. Go to Matthew chapter 21. We are going to be all over the Bible if you need one. Go ahead and let one of our highly trained martial artists known as ushers uh, know they hand out Bibles too in their spare time just to keep their balance. Um, Matthew 21. Now, we are looking at different aspects of atonement. Atonement is a big fancy word that talks about reunifying us with our relationship with our Creator. And so we're looking at different features of that in a series called All Things New, that God is actually at work restoring more than just our forgiveness, hallelujah for that, but the story is bigger. So we're going to do a bunch of uh, Bible stuff. I'm so sorry. I'm just so sorry there's so much Bible. I I apologize. I wish we had more time for cute, meaningless stories, Um, but you know, we'll just have to settle for the words of Jesus. All right, so Matthew chapter 21 the Gospels really slow down when they come to the last week of Jesus. Uh, you, you read about his birth, and then there's silence. We get one episode in four different accounts of, of, of Jesus at, at, at the age of 12 at the temple. And then, and then you, you just don't hear about anything until he's 30. And then for three years, you hear about his ministry, but it's just the highlights. Although everything he did is a highlight. And then, um, and then they, they slow down. And the last week of his life, I mean, it's just, they just take it almost day by day, moment by moment through the last week of his life. And so I want you to notice a whole bunch of things that happened to him on his journey to the cross. Uh, Matthew 21, verse 23, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him, and they began to question him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. Who gave you this authority? In fact, a lot of Jesus' interaction during the last week of his life is marked by him responding to the questions and the concerns of the religious elite. Flip over to chapter 26. Chapter 26, verse 14. The Gospels slow down when they come to the last week of Jesus' life. And I want you just to notice the kinds of things that happen to him. Matthew 26, 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver Jesus to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver, and then Judas went and looked for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Jump down, if you would, to verse 38. 
Jesus, after celebrating a Passover meal, goes to a garden and he begins to pray and he invites some of his followers with him. He says to them, verse 38, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here with me uh, and keep watch. Going on a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup, and that's a reference to his suffering, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he says, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? And then this happens two more times. In the middle of Jesus' agony, he wanted to have his closest uh, disciples near him, but they keep falling asleep on the job. Go, if you would, to verse 67 of that same chapter. Jesus is arrested. Judas arranges for the betrayal. Jesus is arrested. And he's brought to trial before a group called the Sanhedrin, the religious council that ruled Judaism, uh, at least in the first century. And uh, verse 67, they spit, then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. These are the religious leaders. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard. Now Peter had promised that no matter what anyone else did, he would never deny Jesus. Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, you were with Jesus of Galilee, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again, but this time with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, while standing there, excuse me, after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them, that your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. So he's questioned, he's betrayed, uh, his followers, his closest followers kept falling asleep, so he was literally alone in this agony. He's beaten, he's denied, flip over to chapter 27. He goes to trial before a man named Pilate, who was the regional Roman official, and it was a custom of the Roman government to release a prisoner at the time of Passover, and so the, the crowd had a choice of a man named Barabbas and Jesus, and so they, as you know, very famously choose to have Barabbas released to them. Verse 26, then Pilate released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Verse 27, then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and they took the staff and struck him on the head again and again, driving those thorns deeper into his skull. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. Jump over to verse 39, same chapter. He's now on the cross, and those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we'll believe in him. 
He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For Jesus said, I am the Son of God. And in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So Mondo, Mondo, fire up the PowerPoint. Now you know there is a Mondo. So this is the story we're given. Here's what happens to this Jesus. He's questioned. He's betrayed. He's deserted. He's denied. He's spit upon. He's struck in the face. He's slapped. He's mocked. He's stripped naked. He's insulted. He's beaten. He's lied about. He's falsely accused, convicted, condemned, crucified. He's humiliated, scorned, pierced, bruised, rejected, hated, stared at, left naked in public to die, and ultimately killed. In fact, one other author put it this way. Next slide. Notice he was shamed as a prophet. They would hit him and say, hey, guess who hit you? They shamed him as a king when they gave him this fake crown and this fake robe and they put a sign over his cross, hail king of the Jews. They shame him as a priest. You can't save other people. Come down from your cross. They shame him as a sacrifice. You saved others, but you can't even save yourself. And notice, what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus absorbs the suffering of the shame for us and then calls us to participate in absorbing evil the same way that he did. Go, if you would, to Luke chapter 23. Flip on over. Jesus' response to all of this humiliation is quite interesting. There are seven things he says while he's being crucified. And they all have very, very deep significance. We'll look at a few of them on Good Friday. But there are two I want to bring your attention right now to uh, Luke 23, verse 34. Two other men were crucified with him. Jesus said, in the middle of all of this, that whole long list of stuff, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Jump down to verse uh, 42. One of these, um, these robbers, these bandits that were sitting uh, next to him being crucified, says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what's Jesus say? Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So the image we get is of the most unjust and cruel suffering ever handed out to anybody. And at the same time that's all happening, Jesus' response is one of grace and mercy and forgiveness and invitation. Instead of cursing and retaliating. And he said, listen, I can call down legions of angels if we want to go to war on this. Nobody takes my life. I give it. And the image you get is of Jesus absorbing this evil, but not retaliating in response. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. I know, so much Bible. I'm so sorry. 1 Peter chapter 2. Second part of verse 20. Fewer and fewer are attempting to stick with me. It's it's all right. If we had an hour, we could take our time, but we do not, because you insist on picking up your children. 1 Peter 2, verse 20. Peter says, If you suffer for doing good, and you you endure it, this is commendable before God. So, you're doing good, you don't deserve suffering, but you get suffering in response to doing good. What is our natural response? Retaliate. But instead, the invitation here is if you are suffering for doing good and you endure it, in other words, you don't retaliate, this is commendable before God. 
And notice this phrase, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So all of that happens to Jesus. He doesn't retaliate. And Peter says, oh, by the way, that's a pattern for how you're to be. Jump down to verse 23. When they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Now, I've always found it odd that of all the ways to describe what happened that first Friday, we have come to describe that Friday as Good Friday. If you were there that first Friday, was it good? No. If there was a scoreboard that, you know, that, that would have been there in some you know, sort of cosmic way, it would have read Rome 1, Jesus 0. Would you agree? I mean, as Jesus, and for many of you, you've seen the passion of the Christ. I mean, that, that, that isn't even as gruesome as it really was and would have been. And so the idea that the Messiah would suffer was so antithetical to Jewish and Greek thought that literally, I mean, you just would have said, this is defeat. I mean, there's no possible way this was supposed to happen. A crucified Messiah is not a Messiah by definition. Because crucifixion was the most humiliating, torturous form of death that humanity had invented up until that point. And the idea, and so, so we take, I mean, can you imagine if you walked into a wedding and there, next to the altar at the wedding, there was a guillotine. And, and, and you had people singing about the wonderful guillotine and, and people wearing guillotine-shaped jewelry. Would you think they were a bit odd? Or, or, or you walk... You walk into a service, and it's not kind of like a service you've ever been before, but here they have an electric chair. And they start singing about how this electric chair won for them a great victory. Would you think them a little odd? See, we've kind of lost the audacity of this instrument of torture behind me. And so, and nothing wrong with having nice gold crosses, and, but it's kind of... <laughs> To turn it into something that we stamp on pens and trinkets and mold into jewelry, we've lost a bit of the scandal and the offense of what this represents. Because if you would have been standing there on that first Friday, nobody would have called it good. But yet, within days, months, and years after this event, the earliest Christians kept insisting that it was victory. Go to Colossians. Flip backwards to Colossians chapter 2. This blows my mind. Second part of verse 13. Colossians chapter 2, verse thir- second part of verse uh, 13. God forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. In other words, picture a prosecuting attorney with you as the defendant. And that prosecuting attorney has the list of every wrong thing you've done and every good thing you failed to do. 
And for some of us, that list is pretty long. I'll venture miles long. The image is of somebody who wants to accuse us and prosecute us because of the indebtedness of all of that wrongdoing. And this writer says, He forgave us having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And then here's the thing that's crazy. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So, to human eyes, on that Friday, the scoreboard read, Rome 1, Jesus 0. But evidently, and this is what's so full of paradox, is that what seemed like defeat was actually victory. And what seemed like suffering was actually glory. And what seemed like death was actually life. And what seemed like weakness was actually strength. That something happened that was so important and so momentous that literally everything has to be reconfigured because of it. That how it looked and how it was were two different things. In fact, they were just exactly opposite each other. It looked like defeat when in fact it was victory. Go if you would to to the book 1 Corinthians. Flip to the left. I want us to be reminded a little bit that of the oddity of calling Friday Good Friday. The oddity of having an instrument of torture and oppression as one of the centermost objects of our faith. I want us to just be re-scandalized a little bit about how absurd it is to boast in a crucified Messiah. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 says this. He says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person or the teacher of the law or the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? In other words, who would have dreamt up the idea that God would have conquered death by dying? Or that God would have conquered evil by suffering himself? Nobody would have cooked this up. Never in the annals of religion or philosophy would you have drawn this up on a blank board and said, oh, okay, this is how it's going to work. And so the writer continues, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Remember all the times Jesus was asked, show us a miracle, show us your Messiah. And the Greeks looked for wisdom, right? They were known for their philosophy and their sophistry and their rhetoric. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling... Now, you understand Christ isn't Jesus' last name. Right? This was a title. So literally, the text reads, but we preach Messiah crucified. King crucified. It's that juxtaposition of conqueror yet... Sufferer. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, an offense 
and foolishness to the Greeks. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power and wisdom of God. And then here's this great line, for the foolishness of God is wiser excuse me, than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And so you have to understand the absurdity of Jewish men and women pointing to the instrument of their oppression and saying that's victory. I mean, that would be like if you were a Holocaust survivor boasting in a gas chamber. You, really? Or, or somebody from the African-American community boasting in the sheets of the Ku Klux Klan men to take the very symbol of injustice and oppression and then to say, no, 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 no. That looks like defeat, but I'm telling you it's victory. That looks like weakness. I'm telling you that strength. It flips everything upside down so that you and I literally live now in a cross-shaped world that what looks like victory isn't always victory and what looks like defeat isn't always defeat and what looks like weakness isn't always weakness and what looks like strength isn't always strength and what looks like suffering isn't always suffering and what looks like glory isn't always glory. If you follow a crucified Messiah, what you've entered into is a cross-shaped world where things are not what they seem because that first Friday... You would have said it's done. It's over. There's no way this Jesus is who he said he was. There's no way. And yet, notice what the earliest writers were saying. So 40, 50 days later, go to Acts chapter 2. There's no way to explain this. How in the world this band of cowards who all deny Jesus, whether verbally or just in absence, get turned into this fierce, not afraid to be martyred community that took on the Jews in the very same city that had put Jesus to death. And then the Roman Empire, the greatest empire that humanity has ever achieved. It starts with a band of cowards who begin preaching Notice first Acts chapter 2, verse 24. But God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. And notice this great phrase. Because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Death isn't strong enough to handle Jesus. Flip over to Romans 6, to the right. Fewer and fewer. Romans 6. How do you like my little... Table thingy. I hear it's slimming, so I thought I'd give it a shot. <laughs> Romans 6, verse 9. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Flip over to 2 Timothy. Just because we can. And you know where 2 Timothy is, right? It's right after? Boom. Unfunny every single time. Every single time. You guys okay? I mean, this is all point one. Second Timothy. Good thing there's just one point. Second Timothy, chapter one, verse 10. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has what? Destroyed death. Okay, so let me get this straight. So from the earliest moments 
after what appeared to everybody as this incredible and crushing defeat of this so-called pretender Messiah, his formerly cowardly followers, now with great boldness, begin to announce that this Jesus not only died, but death couldn't keep its hold on him. Death no longer has mastery over him. And in fact, it's destroyed. And they were all willing to go die for preaching that. So I guess what looked like defeat wasn't defeat after all. What looked like suffering wasn't suffering after all. What looked like weakness wasn't weakness after all. Evidently something happened where all of those valuations are now upside down. In fact, flip back to 1 Corinthians because we can. Go to chapter 15. Paul is speaking about our resurrected bodies. And he actually taunts death. Verse 54. And he's speaking of our new bodies. He says, when our old perishable bodies have been clothed with the imperishable, and our old mortal bodies with immortality, then the saying that has been written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And then he taunts, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Now, was Paul going to die? Was Paul going to die? Yes. Paul was going to die. So evidently, what looked like death wasn't the final word for this writer. There was something else being spoken over him. He was about to be martyred for his faith. So, not a surprise. In a cross-shaped world, What looks like defeat isn't always. And what looks like suffering isn't always. And what looks like glory isn't always. And what looks like success isn't always. What looks like weakness isn't always. And what looks like strength isn't always. You can no longer trust your version of events to be the true story of how they're going to play out. Because on that first Friday, you would have sworn it was over. It's done. There's no way. And yet within days... They were preaching, no, 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 death's been destroyed, sorry. It wasn't strong enough to hold this Jesus, sorry, and they begin to taunt it. Now, Mondo, fire up next PowerPoint slide. Think about the implications. That's a good-looking dude. In a cross-shaped world, the first are last and the last are first. In a cross-shaped world, those who humble themselves will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves are humbled. See, everything's upside down. In a cross-shaped world, if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. In a cross-shaped world, whoever wants to be great must be servant of all. In a cross-shaped world, those who lose their life for the sake of Jesus find it. In a cross-shaped world, when a person is weak, they are actually strong. In a cross-shaped world, believers can have nothing and yet possess everything. Because evidently, the last word isn't death. Evidently, the last word isn't evil. When Jesus absorbs this evil, refuses to pass it on, he takes it out of circulation and instead responds with grace and mercy. Evidently, that act was so significant that it changed the way the world works. I've told you a lot about our little boy, Seth. Talk about him almost all the time. We are learning so much from him. He's three years old. He has Down syndrome, as you know. Our journey with him has been amazingly powerful. And many of you know this, but forgive me, it's the only story I got. 
But when we heard three months before he was born that little Seth had Down syndrome, we were crushed. We were sad. We were a bit angry and disappointed. And when we told our church that we were in this spot, there were many, many people who came up and said, we're so sorry, we're so sorry. And we needed to hear that because we were sorry too. We're so sorry, we're so sorry. But there was this family, family of three, Mom and dad, a little boy, maybe four years old, he had Down syndrome, and they come trucking up with big smiles on their faces. And in the midst of we're so sorry, we're so sorry, they look at me and they say, we're so happy for you. Because in a cross-shaped world, what feels like cursing isn't always cursing. It could be, in fact, blessing. In a cross-shaped world, what felt bad turned out to be good. What feels like defeat could actually be victory. Three years with our little dude later, the people who said, we're so sorry, including us, were wrong. And the people that said, we're so happy for you, they were right. In a cross-shaped world, why is it that people can say being laid off is the best thing that ever happened to me? I've had people look me with a straight face and say getting cancer was the best thing that ever happened to me. See, that doesn't make sense unless you follow a crucified Messiah. Because if you follow a crucified Messiah, there isn't one single speck of human life that isn't beyond the reach of redemption for somebody who's experienced it all, the worst the world has to offer, and then three days later is cooking breakfast for people. I mean, that's the story. He's cooking breakfast. (laughs) Evidently, rising from the dead gives you quite an appetite. And so you see why everyone was walking around going, no, 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 you don't understand. Death doesn't have the last word anymore. Cancer doesn't have the last word anymore. Divorce, not the last word. Depression, not the last word. Bankruptcy, not the last word. Foreclosure, not the last word. Evidently, the world has changed. And you and I are now invited into the same pattern of this Jesus, of redefining what, what is blessing and cursing? What is success and weakness and weakness and strength? And redefining all of those categories. My dad died in 2007 from an agonizing battle with cancer. And it was so terribly, terribly heartbreaking. His biggest fear in life was dying a pretty horrific death. And in fact, I mean, it paralyzed him. He would fret and agonize about dying all the time. And when this hit, we didn't know it was going to result in his death. We were told this was totally, we could handle this. And as it exploded throughout his body, he got weaker and weaker. That paralysis and fear that had been with him all of his life just surfaced so powerfully. Am I really saved? I mean, just all of this. And one morning... Uh, shortly before the end, my brother and I came into his room, and he wasn't lucid a ton, but in this moment he was. He was sobbing. And he just said, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I've let you down, I've let you down. What, Dad, what? He said, I had a dream last night, the most vivid dream I've ever had, and in that dream, I was with Jesus. And it was so real that I didn't want to come back and say goodbye to you. I just wanted to stay with him. And he just starts sobbing, I've let you down, I've let you down, I've let you down. And I go, oh, oh, so let me get this straight. You wanted to die. He hadn't seen it yet. 
So Jesus, the gift of Jesus to you was that you wanted to die. And then the sobbing just started all the more. And he was free. And here's how he dies. I mean, this was so awesome. Okay, we're here. Deep breath in. And then nothing. Nothing. As if you fell off to sleep. The most peaceful, serene. Now you can chalk that up to just either the drugs or wishful thinking. I happen to believe, though, what looks like death isn't always death. I happen to believe that what looks like suffering isn't always suffering. That there's some other bigger story being told. And if God's people would ruthlessly trust that there is another one being written, then perhaps we would begin to be willing to take the evil done to us out of circulation and not pass it on. Because isn't it true when you forgive somebody, doesn't feel like defeat? I mean, or is it just me? When when somebody's done something to me, what do I want to do? Retaliate. I want to get them back. Right? Eye for an eye. And so to yield my right to revenge... Feels like a defeat, but in a cross-shaped world, what feels like defeat is often victory. What feels like weakness is actually strength. Because does it take any strength to get revenge? Does it take any strength to flip somebody off and they cut you off? Does it take any strength whatsoever? Does it take any strength? That's easy. I'll tell you what takes strength. Somebody wounds you and you refuse to wound them back. When somebody's angry with you and you go seek out forgiveness and apologize, that takes strength that nobody has. And so this Jesus comes to us not not only as our Savior, but he comes to us as the pattern. Because if you actually believe we live in a cross-shaped world and the rules are being rewritten, then you don't have to always get your way. Because whatever you're going through doesn't have the last word over you. End of story. Now that doesn't mean we don't grieve. Oh, we grieve. Oh, we grieve. I grieve. And it doesn't mean we just give shiny, happy, red bow answers to every question. But as Paul writes, we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. And so we are a defiant and a stubborn people. Because we're a people that insist there's a bigger story being told. And that what we think is defeat could actually be victory. And what we think is cursing could actually be blessing. And what we think is suffering could actually be an expression of glory. And what we think is weakness could actually be an expression of strength. And so John Ramsey I was leading worship. He just had this idea, well, let's just celebrate communion every single Sunday as we march towards Easter. And so we want to invite you to the table this morning. And we want to invite you to the table in a specific way. I would imagine there are many of us who sit with some sort of something in your life that feels like cursing or defeat. When you take communion, what you're acknowledging is that how it feels to me 
versus what it actually is, they're not always the same thing. And that this thing doesn't have the last word over my life. This doesn't ground my fundamental identity any longer. See, we are a stubborn people who keep insisting, in spite of circumstances, to the contrary, that what looked like crucifixion was actually exaltation. See, if you buy that, then this is where it leads. That you just can't keep score the way you used to. And so for us this morning, I want us to take the bread and the cup and and appreciate the paradox of the bloody, bruised, and beaten body of Jesus. And that that's what we're celebrating. We're not celebrating a nice religion We're not celebrating a nice feel-good morality. We're not celebrating a nice, tight set of doctrine. We're celebrating the God who made us becoming the God who saves us by taking upon himself the worst this life has to offer and then inviting us to come and follow. So when you take the bread and take the cup, you're saying, I'll follow. I'll follow a crucified Messiah. And all that that means. So would you stand up? We have tables in the front and the back. We invite you to come and to take the elements with the people you came with. In other words, if you're here with a family, take it with a family. You're here with friends. Take this with friends because the one certain thing I know is that we forget that life really is this way. John said it. I mean, we come in and we've been operating according to the principles and values of the world. And we come into this place and are so, it's easy in this moment to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got it. I got it. But God knows we're forgetful people. And so he gives us signs and symbols and others to remind us. And so, and if you see somebody who's not with anybody else, invite them into your community because they are your brother or sister in Christ. So Lord Jesus, we boast this morning in the fact that you gave yourself willingly for the joy set before you to go through the cup of suffering for our sakes. And that we so blithely celebrate Good Friday and wear the instrument of your torture as jewelry. God, we just want to receive you again as a reminder of what it was that actually happened there. And that had we been there, we would have been horrified. We would have been staggered. We would have walked away, abandoning our faith, denying, so full of bitterness and betrayal, that you weren't who you said you were. And then we, Lord willing, we would have been people having seen your scars and touched your skin, would have been people with great boldness, now proclaiming that everything's upside down. And so give us faith and courage and grace this morning to receive you and to believe that nothing in our life has the last word besides the phrase, it is finished. That's the last word spoken over us. And so we come to the table 
to remind ourselves it's finished. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, our God's children said, Amen. Let us worship together at the table.